to the fourth episode of Coffee Talk at Godric's Hollow. My name is Manish. And I'm Monica. And today we're going to be discussing the beast inside me. And we're going to be talking about characters like, you know, Remus Lupin, who is a werewolf, and Rubius Hagrid, a half-giant, half-wizard. And then we're going to touch on the darling of the show, Flor Delacour. <laughs> Apparently she's the secret star of our podcast, since we've mentioned her four times in the last four episodes. <laughs> Which is not something we, we, we didn't plan that. No, no. But we also have a special announcement. It is Harry Potter month. Yes, Harry Potter was born in the month of July. As the seventh month oh. dies, the chosen one will be born, whatever the prophecy is. Yeah, yeah. I should so. have it memorized, because I have it tattooed on my left arm. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> we should get it tattooed. Yeah? That and the Deathly Hallows symbol. Ooh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then we're also going to be discussing centaurs who play a, a, you know, a pretty strong supporting role uh, in various parts of the series, like in the fifth book and the first book, right. namely. And we'll, we'll end the show with a little discussion about what's the beast inside me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's start with Remus Lupin who uh, is introduced in the third book as probably the best defense against the dark arts teacher that Hogwarts had had during Harry's six years there wouldn't you agree with that right he's um he's really obviously very knowledgeable but he's also fun he's interesting he keeps the class on its toes. He's kind of, he's this great, great character, but he's described as being like really shabby. Um, tired. Yeah, like bags under his eyes. And I guess you kind of wonder why. You know, why is this smart guy so broke? <laughs> or why is this, you know, fun person seem like he doesn't have, you know, that many friends or whatever? Because we're not Hermione. We didn't figure it out <laughs> as soon as Snape, <laughs> as soon as Snape, you know, asked for that uh, essay werewolf to be written. Essay. Yeah, we didn't figure it out as soon as Snape asked for that werewolf essay to be written. I mean, I remember being, you know, 10 or 11 and reading, you know, Prison of Azkaban and being so shocked and betrayed, you know, when Lupin is revealed to be a werewolf. Because at that point, you know, you still think that he's in league with Sirius Black. You still think that Sirius Black is a villain. So you're just like, what? Like, the one guy we've been trusting for, you know, 300 pages. So you felt betrayed because... Well, why did you feel betrayed? Because you thought that he was Sirius's friend or because he was a werewolf? Well, because he was Sirius's friend. Okay. You know... I mean, I think at 10 or 11, I wasn't really sure what being a werewolf meant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we know what they are, but... Well, maybe... But, I don't I mean, know. I guess, yeah, I think twilight so... Oh my gosh, was there a life pre-Twilight? <laughs> I don't think so. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I felt more betrayed that he was Sirius's friend because, you know, he was such a mentor to Harry and really helped him out in amazing ways. And he was a friend to James Potter... And uh, you just, I just couldn't believe that he was out to kill and get Harry like Sirius was. But then, as we all know, the two traitor turned out to be you know, Peter Pettigrew. 
Right. So, Lupin being a werewolf affected him greatly when he was in school. It was something he had to hide. And it wasn't something that he chose to become. You know, he was bitten. He was, you know, taken advantage of as a young child. And he has this, uh, he has this monster that, that takes over who he is once a month. And for a long time, you know, not being able to control that, how do you think that ended up affecting his kind of emotional stasis or his emotional well-being? It probably led him to feel deep shame and isolation, too. I mean, we don't really know many people who transform completely, you know, every month. And he probably felt really alone and scared. Not just scared because he doesn't know what's going on, but scared that he might hurt someone he loves or, you know, make a real, um, make a real mess of his life. You know, I mean, you know, but, you know, when you're a teenager or when you're a pre-adolescent, you just hear, you just don't, you just don't know anything about yourself. You're still finding yourself. And to have this, this major change you know, happen to you, not even by your own choice, but it just, it has to be really shameful, and he probably is filled with a lot of regret. He probably wanted to do, isolate himself and make sure that no one he loved got hurt. But right, then, which is you know, why, the, which is why when he has these three friends that want to spend time with him, even when he's at his worst, or what he thinks is his worst, you know, how could he not just completely feel so much loyalty and love for these guys, for these for these boys that said, well, I accept you no matter what you are. We connect Lupin's Lupin's transformation into a werewolf to a couple different couple different things. Uh, one of them being mental illness, another being homosexuality, and then also uh, people who have the who have HIV. <laughs> Yeah, especially towards the end, you know, after the climax, you know, when Snape reveals Lupin to be a werewolf, Lupin has to resign because otherwise he fears that letters will come from all the parents begging, forcing Dumbledore to fire him. So he says he might as well just leave before all that happens and spare himself the embarrassment, spare Dumbledore the embarrassment and the humiliation. And that sort of reminded me of, you know, the sort of hysteria that came when, uh, you know, during the AIDS breakout in the 1980s, and even into the 1990s, you really, people really had this fear of being associated with someone who was HIV positive because they were afraid that they could contract it. I mean, now science and common sense tells us that, you know, you can't contract HIV simply from being in the same vicinity as someone else who's HIV positive. Right. Well, I think the thing is, is that there's a stigma, or there there still is, but there was a very strong stigma attached to it. Um, yeah. It's not some, I mean, you know, people don't really go around sharing their, their medical, um, their medical history with everybody, but. Right. You know, having to hide, having to hide a part, having to hide something that's, 
that you're going through because you you know that you're going to be asked to resign from your job or or you know that parents won't want their children to be learning from you is very painful and we know that Lupin went through that already uh I guess I think the idea is that he tried to have some teaching jobs or some jobs before but once they kind of figured out that he's a werewolf they they either completely ostracized him or basically told him that he would have to that or basically fired him and we learn in the fifth book I believe that like Dolores Umbridge has created so many laws that make it completely impossible for Lupin to find a job anywhere. And, um, I don't, I don't know. It just, it just, it just seems that this monster that he has inside him, no matter how long he tries to control it or to forget about it or to hide it or to mask it, it always comes back and bites him. (laughs) Quite literally. (laughs) You know, and then... We also learned in the third book that he had to take this wolfsbane potion in order to keep his own mind when he's transformed into a wolf. And um, right, it prevents him from it prevents him from transforming. Right. Well, I mean, he he still becomes the wolf, but he keeps his own mind. He doesn't transform completely. He doesn't lose his humanity. Humanity, which is, I think, is a really important. it's really important for him to keep his wits about him because it's the one connection he has to like a sort of sane existence. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that that part where he has to take this medication to kind of keep him in check and, and everything. Well, while this change is happening reminds me of, of how mental illness is, is kind of viewed in in our society and how you know one of my favorite one of my favorite books and movies is in her shoes and yeah. in it in it they talk about their mother who killed herself and they say how you know this this was like in the 70s or something well I don't actually remember but they say how her mother their mother felt really fuzzy and not herself when she was taking um, medication and it's just that mental illness is, isn't accepted. You know, people don't talk about these um, these problems that they're having because they they're gonna be they're not viewed in the right. They're not viewed as being a part of who you are right. anymore. You you're viewed by your illness or you're viewed by your condition rather than who you are as a person. Yeah, it ultimately ends up defining you, and I don't think. Lupin or anyone else want to be defined by something A, that they can't control and B, that has no well, I can't say it has no bearing on their you know, individuality, I mean, it does right, I mean, your experience doesn't define them yeah, I mean, obviously your experiences shape who you are and and everything, but I think it's just that and, and this is also why I see it connecting to homosexuality is because People don't see you anymore. They see you saying that I'm gay or I'm straight. <laughs> they see you saying that I have ADHD or I have schizophrenia. They don't. They don't see the person anymore. And I mean, I, I think our society is really, you know, 
nuts about labeling. You know, you have to label yourself. Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you bisexual? Are you schizophrenic? You know, do you, what, you know, what mental disorder do you have? And that sort of, you just become labeled so that you can become categorized and placed into the appropriate, you know, so that people can approach you with the appropriate mindset. You know, like, he has HIV positive, let's not talk about it. Or she's schizophrenic, so be sure not to mention, you know what I mean? Right. So it sort of just becomes this label that just consumes your entire individual individuality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting how being becoming a werewolf is in, is incredibly destructive. Yeah. And it's not. It, it's funny because it's not something that. You know that you want to at least in the Potter series, it's not something that. You like unless you're, Greyback. Yeah, you yeah. like how I mean, I think that when we, as we see from Lupin, since he can't even control it and he is such a good person, we know that it that it's not exactly the romanticized Twilight werewolf. <laughs> right. No. Exactly. Yeah. There's no, you know, there's no romance. I mean, we don't. We still don't know if vampires exist in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Snape I mean, is totally a vampire. What are you talking about? <laughs> but you know, I mean, I mean, witches and wizards are so romanticized in Harry Potter. You know, I mean, who? Whenever you watch the series or read the books, you want to be a wizard. I mean, I've practiced spells so many times in my room to no effect. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I mean, Lupin. Lupin's portrayal of his lycanthropy is really ugly and destructive, and it's just—I mean, when when Nymphadora Tonks falls in love with Lupin, you know her own, and she's you know, rejected by him. Her own personality sort of mirrors Lupin. You know, she becomes shabby and tired, and she loses all the spunk that we, you know, began to love in the fourth book. You know, she's she's losing some of her metamorphosis powers. You know, she can't change her hair color anymore. She can't change her. She starts to lose herself into in sadness. In yeah. sadness, and she also starts to become defined by you know the werewolf because that's what her patronus becomes. I like how you brought up Tonks just now because I was just thinking about how love is such an important mo- motif in the books and how. It's shown yeah. as being able to overcome so much, or well, everything basically, um, and it reminds me of a very uh, the Hulk slash Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde slash King Kong type of <laughs> right, type right. of thing where people when, once they're given affection, once they're given given love, it's like they can it's like they can contain this beast inside them. Right. <laughs> I mean, in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I mean, I saw the movie, you know, about a year ago, or a little bit more than a year ago, and uh, you, you really had this dichotomy of, like, the good person um, in the daytime, you know, the bad person in the nighttime. And, I mean, even, even in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Mr. Hyde, uh, even he's romanticized. Not so much in, like, the Twilight sense, but in the fact that he gets to do all the bad things, you know, like go around with prostitutes and steal and drink. 
uh, that and he can't do that as Dr. Jekyll because he's too respectable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's like a big difference between you know that story and Lupin because Lupin's transformation doesn't include any side benefits, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> but think about it. Wouldn't you kind of like if every so often you can just kind of unleash yourself and be like, well, I'm just going to go crazy right now. Some of us do that at the at the bar every weekend. <laughs> but. Yes, I mean, I, I you know that would be that I think that would seem kind of fun at first, but I think at at the end of the day, you know, when you start <laughs> to realize that this sort of night persona that you have, or when you look persona, at the carnage around you, yeah, <laughs> you sort of think, well. Maybe I won't do this again. And I, I think that does happen at the end of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think he starts to realize that Mr. Hyde isn't as fun as he first seemed. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the... And I guess another thing, another person would be the, the character in Fight Club, but that's a bit that's a bit more um, psychological. Yeah. <laughs> and something interesting that I love about Lupin is that his whole life seems to be such a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> or like a burden you know I mean even in, um, I mean the third book going back to that potion he has to take oh, what's that line he t- it's like sugar makes it useless or it doesn't yeah, work when he speaks it, it just brings the I whole mean, metaphor full circle yeah I mean even the one thing that he needs to take in order to keep his you know humanity as a wolf even that is such a burden to drink and it smells and it tastes horrible and it's given to him by Severus Snape, <laughs> you know, who, who doesn't give who doesn't give things, you know, with grace and dignity. <laughs> oh, Snape, you vampire! <laughs> I just love that one that one essay that you and I go back to all the time about <laughs> is Snape a vampire? Yes, because of these points. He's described as being incredibly pale and. Um, you know, another uh, another mentor figure that Harry has, who we always want to see victorious in the end, is Rubius Hagrid. Right. But he sort of seems to get a similar treatment as Lupin, in some sense, because he he may not be a werewolf, but he is half giant, half wizard, and sometimes his giant you know, blood or giant heritage uh, ultimately gets gets him in trouble because he has almost superhuman, well, he has superhuman strength because he's, you know, only half right. human. Well, I think the, the thing is, is that he's not, he doesn't get the same, he doesn't get the right kind of respect or, um, or anything when, when he's at Hogwarts and then. You know, he's immediately the the scapegoat for Tom Riddle's, you know, wrongdoings and and it's not and it's it's sort of a you know, who's who who's who are we gonna blame? Oh yeah, the kid who's half giant, obviously, because there's no way that that giant in him is making him into a respectable person. And the uh the one thing that does get him in trouble in the second book is his pet giant spider, Air Dog. Right, right. And that is just another example of Hagrid's love for these extreme magical creatures. 
and that affection for monsters. I mean, they're monsters, basically. You know, I mean, Buckbeak. Yeah. I mean, I love Buckbeak. You know, my Twitter handle is at Hippogriff Rider. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Buckbeak is, Hippogriffs in general are almost vicious creatures. I mean, you kind of have to be careful around them. Right, right. No, we get that. And um, so, and Thestrals, and the Blast-Ended Scroots, and Grop. <laughs> well, <laughs> These are all monsters that Hagrid has such affection for, even though they're dangerous to himself and, you know, to everyone else at the school. Maybe we can just talk about why Hagrid loves these monsters so Well, much. yeah, we, we, he identifies with them because part of him is them. Uh, we learn from, you know, meeting Grop and, well, I think Grop is not supposed to be um, a high-functioning giant. We learn that Giants are not nice, they're mean, <laughs> um, which which always makes us question how <laughs> Hagrid's dad and, and mother had this giant love story. Uh, but I just don't understand, because from what we see of giants in the fifth book, well, we don't see them, but you know, as we're told, they don't seem like they have you know, any romance to them or any, you know class or sophistications. I just wonder how Hagrid's mom met his dad and how they found love and how they decided to have kids. I can't say I'm not curious. I'm very curious. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think Hagrid is another one where, you know, he doesn't exactly belong. He doesn't completely fit into the world, the wizarding world or, or into the giant world, you know, because... Because he is, you know, he is mixed. And and I think that that, realizing that he doesn't really fit in and, you know, people don't, people won't immediately accept him, that makes him identify with these other beasts that people don't like. <laughs> Nobody likes Thestrals because it's a constant reminder of what they've lost. Uh, blast-ended scroots are uh, genetic mutations that should never have made it past evolution, <laughs> if evolution applies in the wizarding world. And, you know, having a pet dragon because you always wanted one, you know, it's it's incredibly dangerous. <laughs> well, there could be another explanation for Hagrid's love of monsters. And I think that is, like, he could just be crazy. Right, he, and... he's just insane. <laughs> He's just totally insane. <laughs> I mean, he has, it could just be that like he has no sense of danger. You know, maybe he's missing that gene, or maybe that's a giant in him that he just doesn't, he just can't conceive that these monsters can be dangerous, you know. Right, just this kind of fearlessness, or, um, but not but not fearless in bravado. It's definitely, uh, why would they hurt me, you know? Type of yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you could think they won't hurt him because he's just one of them. He's just another beast, quote unquote, that society has to look down on because of prejudice or right. Well, I was recently listening to a this uh, a this American Life episode called uh, "Reap What You Sow," and it, you know the episode ranged from. Uh, you know, karma to immigration law, but one of the acts was about this, basically this Hispanic gangster who adopts a rooster, and 
the the story is that the rooster ends up being really disruptive to the neighborhood. So, you know, everybody complains and the cops come and say, look, you have to give this rooster away. You can't keep him anymore. And the whole moral of the story is that this, this Hispanic gangster, you know, found a brother in this rooster because, you know, they were both sort of these obnoxious, so appeared to be out of control um, entities and nobody wanted them around. And when it came to this guy being able to take care of this rooster, he didn't like that. You know, nobody was willing to to stand up for for this rooster that was just being himself, was completely innocent and just being himself. And I just thought, you know, one, it's a, it's a really nice story. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's sad, it's... but it's a, it's it's good. And you know, when thinking about what to thinking about this episode, I thought, well, wow, that like immediately connects to sort of Hagrid because you know nobody nobody wanted Aragog, um, but and nobody was willing to stand up for him except for Hagrid. <laughs> and that, that even applies to Hagrid himself. I mean, when whenever Hagrid gets into this trouble, you really you only have a small group of people who want to stick up for him. Right, you know, one that's of them Harry, Hermione, Dumbledore. Ron, and Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. But he's still even even they can't stop Hagrid from being taken away, you know, in, in the second book, or from him getting fire, you know, in the fifth book. Well not get well him resigning actually I should say. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean that's the, the main thing that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are always sort of thinking about is that Hagrid isn't as good a teacher as they want him to be. You know, Gruffly Plank is a better teacher in most sense, in the most, like, traditional senses, uh, sense of what a teacher should be. You know, but they sort of stick up for him because, you know, he's their loyal friend and they should be loyal back. And he's passionate. He cares. And he's, Yeah. Yeah. He cares, and he has... I mean, he does show them very fascinating creatures that I find I would like to at least know about in real life. You know, like, like they are creatures that you probably would never hear about in, like, a ministry-approved curriculum. But they are important <laughs> magical creatures who serve a purpose in the ministry. Ministry-approved just means you can read it in a book, and that's good enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but... I think with with Hagrid, it's it's all it's kind of a it's a sad but cute <laughs> but but cute beast inside of him. You know when yeah. when he learns that he has this brother who's completely wild and out of control, but is then tamed by Hermione. <laughs> you mean Hermie? Oh, sorry, Hermie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just another another parallel to the whole King Kong, and um, oh yeah, the the beautiful girl who tames the monster. Yeah, and I keep bringing up King Kong because I I had it on silent like <laughs> last Sunday or something. Uh, so, I have um, well, I have to mention that we learned about Hagrid's parentage in the Goblet of Fire, and that's also when we get to meet the Vila the first time. 
in the, at the Quidditch World Cup, and there are these amazingly beautiful creatures who entrance every man and maybe lesbian <laughs> into <laughs> saying you know ridiculous things just to just to impress them, and at the hope that one of them will fall in love well, know, with with the wizard. Right, and the thing with the Vila is that. It is identified as being a, a beast, right? It's a, it's identified as being a magical creature. It's, yeah, especially since, you know, you do... When you make them angry, they turn into these, you know, vicious harpies, I guess. Right. But in themselves, they are beast-like entities. They're, they're, yes. not, they're not in the... Well, I guess this is not something that's, in, that's entirely explained to us, but it's not like a, a Vila is a witch, but we don't. But I don't think we know that. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had we have no idea basically what Vila are because if they do have the ability to, you know, procreate with wizards, right? And they obviously uh, have magic in them because Floor has her grandmother's hair as her wand core. Exactly, mm-hmm. but we're not entirely sure if you can become a Vila. I mean, I don't think so. You know. Uh, so there's just a lot we don't know about the Vila. But, however, even though they could kind of be qualified as half-beast, half half-human-being you know, human being type thing... I forget what born, the term is though. that the Ministry uses. Um, half-breed? Like, uh, like the same uh, way that they sort of identify centaurs, I think. Yeah, I don't... I can't remember what the term I is. I don't quite... I, I well, I know what Umbridge calls centaurs half breeds. Okay. Uh, so that that might be, but there might be another word that we're that's slipping our minds right now. But I mean, in general, Vila seems to be more accepted. You know, I mean, w- wizards would more accept a Vila than they would, you know, a werewolf or a centaur. <laughs> or a centaur. And, right. I mean, yeah. why do you think that is? Well, I think because they're they're beautiful, they're sentient. Well, that's why. That's this is also why I wanted to bring up the Vila is because when it comes to all the other beasts, I think that they're probably the most dangerous because they can control you. They can make you right. do terrible, awful things, and you know, make you want to jump off a cliff and uh, pretend you're, you know, David Beckham when you're just like back left on the high school team. Right. And, you know. Uh, I remember in the sixth book, uh, Slughorn says something like, obsessive love can be more dangerous than, you know, a curse. <laughs> right. And uh, I think that applies to the Vila because, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, they could lead you to do these destructive things or even, you know, cause a war, I guess. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Helen Choi was a Vila. Maybe. Well, the thing is, is that they... The Vila are accepted into people's lives and into people's families. Right. When they can be so incredibly manipulative. And it's part it seems to be part of their being, part of their nature to be um yeah. to be that kind of femme fatale, like seductive and Right. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, Flor is is a quarter Vila. Her grandmother was a Vila. Which means she connived her way into <laughs> Floor's grandfather's heart. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, though? I mean, I feel like, like, I feel like a Vila 
in like our own muggle society would be like a really rich person who um, you don't know if they love you for your money or for yourself, you know. And I wonder, Avila would kind of have the same issue where she to fall in love. With I think what you're referring to is something like a trophy wife or a trophy husband. Yeah, like a trophy wife or Not a trophy a... husband since we're in a post-feminist world. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Another question to pose is, are there are there male Vila? Like, what if, like, we don't know, you know, maybe Flor has a brother, which means he would be a quarter Vila as well, but maybe the traits aren't, like, expressed through him. Maybe he doesn't have the same sort of seductive Seductive power, power. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I mean, since we're both gender liberationists, I would hope so. (laughs) That, you know, right. I mean, we allow have have the same power over women, but I think the, uh, the, the funny, the, the interesting part is, is that so Flora has this, she has this capability of to enthrall and um, to capture. And once we find out that she's a Vila, we sort of think that, oh, it's because of that, obviously. Um, and she could, you know, Flora could have used that. And maybe she does use it. To make things go her way, or perhaps I mean, definitely I feel like when Fleur is engaged to Bill, that that's a thought that's sort of running in Hermione and Molly Weasley's and Jenny Weasley's mind. You know, is is Fleur using her Vila powers to get to Bill? <laughs> but when you look at the two of them, it seems to be that Fleur is fawning over. Bill more so than he's fawning over her. I mean, they both seem to be... What I'm trying to say is that, you know, if Fleur was using her power, then Bill would be, you know, skydiving or something. Well, do you think that she's fighting the beast inside her, Fleur? Yeah, I think she's definitely trying to become more so human than uh, Vila. Falling in love in general, I think, is her attempt to, you know, break away from that that beast. The beautiful beast this time. The beautiful beast inside her. The beautiful beast inside her. <laughs> well, you you brought this up just now, the, the kind of insidious nature that that might be lurking in Flora's body and mind. Um, and, you know, once it gets into a family, it can sort of be like a virus that'll start to start to kind of tear people apart, tear families apart. And I think we hear about we hear about women like that that come into <laughs> that come into families and and make things difficult for everybody. Um, right. Make people you know do things that they don't mean and, and everything and and Well, maybe, I mean maybe I'm just also falling under Fleur's spell, but I don't see her doing that. No, I don't either. Okay. But then again, no. <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> but anyway, going back to Fleur, I mean, she de- I mean, yeah, there are times when she's, you know, maybe a little irritated with Molly Weasley, but I don't think that she represents that sort of, you know, bitchy wife who sort of ruins the family. I mean, she's definitely devoted to the Weasleys. I mean, she lives with them just to get to know them better and to make them, you know, love her like Bill does. 
We don't know much about their courtship, but they have been dating for a year. Well, he taught her how to speak English, and she got her job at Green God. Yeah. <laughs> but um, then again, she was also a Tri Wizard champion, so I mean, I imagine that she would be. A she probably had a plethora of job job opportunities presented to yeah. her, and Flora's just been winning life one step at a time. <laughs> so I mean, she seems like a. I'm not jealous. Genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, she seems like a... She seems to be defeating the stereotype that, you know, Vila has towards them. I mean, we mentioned this last week also, and probably the week before that. And probably, well, the following <laughs> weeks as well. It's just it's just another... It's Because Vila are in the series and in the book, uh, the textbook Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, they're, they're in there... And you know, wizards aren't, and witches aren't. <laughs> it's a. Yeah. It means that they're not, that they're they're part of the magical realm, but they have different. Um, I want to say properties, like they're, like they're elements yeah. of nature, but no, I mean definitely have, magical properties. <laughs> right. They're separated by their immense beauty. They're separated by their sort of power of seduction and manipulative skill, and they're all separated by their transformation into violent creatures once, you know, angered. Well, speaking of creatures who get angry, I and mean, let's talk about centaurs now. Sure. <laughs> because I think that they, um, they really personify, you know, hot-tempered, violent creatures, don't you think? Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I mean, they're, they're incredibly smart they map the stars they understand celestial movements like like nobody else um they can speak to philosophy and other arts better than any any wizard or witch or phd student from (laughs) from from harvard or something uh but, but their flaw is that they're so aggressive and so hot-headed and territorial. Um, and prideful. Right, that you know, nobody wants to work with them. <laughs> so, I mean... I think, they're, um, I think they're also separated from you know, regular creatures, not just by their horse body, but from the fact that their human parts are so handsome. You know, I mean, maybe you can sort of connect that to Vila. I mean, they're just so beautiful that, I mean, Parvati and Lavender and Padma are always like, oh my god, friends, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> that funny <laughs> how... <laughs> that's, just, that's just too funny on too many inappropriate levels. Sorry. <laughs> but they're just, you know, the, these centaurs have this sort of persona being gorgeous, but... Uh, very um, impatient, I guess. And why yeah. not be able to handle that? Like, why can't they kind of rein themselves in, every pun intended? And... <laughs> well, because they maybe they just can't control that sort of beastly, that horse, you know, because horses are very territorial also. I mean, if you, if you, you know, get near a horse and it doesn't want you there, you will get a kick from it, you know. So, um, Maybe they just can't control that animalistic urge to mark their territory and to fight for it. And as much as their intelligence and, you know, supreme knowledge about the world, you know, both physical and 
metaphorical, you know, then as smart as they are, they just can't seem to control themselves. Well, what do you think then? Do you think that as humans, our greatest feature is that we have the ability to contain ourselves? Yeah, I think, I think that's the one thing that separates humans from the other animals is our restraint and our willpower to, you know, to control ourselves. I mean, if you look at Lupin, all he wants when he drinks that potion is to keep his humanity, to keep his control. You know, and Hagrid too, us. I mean, we all have to control ourselves, but you know, the Vila well, and the Centaurs can't. I think that, I actually think Hagrid's on the opposite side. Hagrid's the one who's kind of he cultivates these beings and just tells them to be who you are, be who you are, be wild and free and yeah, you know, out of control. Right. So it's sort of these two, these two extremes in a small circle. But you know why? One's all about else I find interesting about the centaurs is that they see themselves as above humans, and that you know, the couple of times, you know, they get really angry when. You know, you sort of hint to them that you need their help. You know, I mean, Hermione asks, Hermione said that, Hermione says to them that she used them to get Umbridge away, you know, and that really angers them and causes this whole fiasco in the forest store. You know, when Friends uh, starts to teach at Hogwarts, you know, they banish him because he's stooping down to teach humans. But I think that's sort of, Ironic, considering, you know, they have this animalistic temper, <laughs> you know, that they, it's sort of like they try to, they read, they like have this sort of haughty, you know. I think that by whatever definition, whatever definition of humanity that they use, they think that humans fall beneath it, that they're the ones that, that uphold it. Because the things that they value are are what we said, are, are what you said, the, the kind of philosophical, metaphorical knowledge about the world and the universe, and then um, being able to protect what's yours. But I think that's a very self-oriented lifestyle. Like, they don't have that sort of sense of community and loyalty and friendship and love that humans have. Well, and maybe they don't value those things. Or maybe they do, but not in the same sense that you know, like, they wouldn't really come to your aid if you needed them, because I think they're above that. Well, this sort like, of... Harry would. This sort of self-centered philosophy is, is definitely a trend in... I, I mean, I'm no philosophy major or student, but... Right. Yeah, I, I know. No way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I know that there's, there's philosophies out there where the only thing that exists is the self. And maybe that's a very, like, upper high view or kind of the kind of how it all just culminates in the self type of uh, I guess that sort of rids yourself of or like cleanses yourself of all these sort of worldly possessions that kind of keep you down into, into the world you know I mean you, you're once you are friends once you have friends and you're loyal to them you're sort of tied to them right. so I guess once you break from them that's where you can achieve your own inner peace I mean, I guess maybe that's the philosophy behind it, but... So then maybe finding the the beast inside <laughs> you is release, releasing the... So, okay, hold on. So maybe releasing the beast inside you 
is the way to achieve inner peace. Perhaps. I mean, maybe when you accept that you have a beast inside of you, then that means you're truly one with yourself, I guess. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The beast inside me (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't be wasting time thinking about solipsist philosophy. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) I'm not a fan of philosophy. I mean, I think the centaurs are totally gonzo nuts. They're a waste of time and space. (laughs) So, like, charming (laughs) stars, like, who cares? Oh, come on, astrology is the best art. It's the greatest and most useful art and science that we have. But anyways, getting into the... the mechanical engineer. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, getting into the beast inside us. If you could be a... If you could turn into an animal... What do you think it would be? Like, if you were to be an animagus? Well, I'm going to say a giraffe, because I love giraffes. It's my favorite animal. But I don't know how useful it would be. Like, I feel like the marauders and McGonagall, like, their animagus forms are so useful. How useful was a deer to be a deer? I mean, how useful could that have been? I guess. I mean, I don't know. But mine would definitely be the giraffe. I, I identify with them in that they're just very tall and lanky. And, you know, they're kind of clumsy sometimes. <laughs> and I, I've seen giraffes eat, like, at the zoo or on, like, YouTube. And I kind of eat like them, too. And you think that's what you... <laughs> so I, I think that's what my animagus form would take. And also my Patronus form. You think your Patronus would be a giraffe? Yeah. Really? I'm, I'm sure of it, yeah. That's so funny. Well, I mean, according to Patronus magic, I mean, it's the same form that your animagus would take. Wait, Really? Yeah, your Patronus and your Animagus are the, are the same unless they're changed because of some, like, emotional upheaval or, you know, unless you're in love or something. I don't, I don't get that. I don't... I mean, you don't, I mean, you don't pick your Animagus form either. Just like how you don't pick your Patronus form. Wait, you don't? You don't pick your Animagus form? No, it's, um, your Animagus becomes, like, what animal represents you. Oh... Like, so and, Peter uh, Pettigrew was actually <laughs> was actually a rat. Yeah, and I mean we talked about this before. You know, oh, right. He was a rat, and no one noticed. Right, right. No, but now I get it. Now I get it. I thought it was yeah. just a, um, a thing. And, you know, and that I mean that's why your animagus also like looks like you. Like McGonagall's, like McGonagall as the cat has the same like markings on her face where her glasses would be, and. Uh, um, well, I guess in that case, then, I was thinking that mine would be two different things, but I'm pretty sure that I would be a lion. Of course, you Gryffindor. Uh, well, I think that it's, here's the thing, and I think it would actually be a male lion, which is a little strange, because, well, it's strange because I'm a female, but. Oh. Sorry. No, I wouldn't be a lioness, because I would not give up, like, what I just, like, caught for like my husband come on right (laughs) but but like lions are obviously powerful um and they're also really lazy so and that's totally me (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, i guess a lion it it represents loyalty 
loyalty and strength. And I think that's exactly who I am. But I wonder, <laughs> like, what how that would actually end up coming out. I just want, I guess it's like your deepest wants and desires. I want to be powerful and strong and yeah, yeah. loyal, and I want everything to be handed to me. So, <laughs> Lion makes sense then. I mean, I guess I. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what purpose giraffes serve in the jungle, but I just like that they seem very cool and like very laid back and nonchalant, kind of aloof. And, um, Every animal has like, its niche. I think they got the jungle parties. They're always having awkward jokes and having a little <laughs> too much to drink. <laughs> I don't see how you and I could ever be friends in the animal world. <laughs> but um, if you want some trivia about J.K. Rowling, I think she said that her patronus would be an otter, like Hermione Granger. Well, she, Joe has said how Hermione is the character that's most like her. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe it's because she's this bookish girl. Um, or maybe it's because she's totally awesome in every way possible, just <laughs> like Hermione. <laughs> well, <laughs> when in doubt, channel Hermione. Seriously. That's our, that's our thing. WWHD, what would Hermione do? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's what I'm getting tattooed. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> But, well, we asked you, listeners, to post on our Facebook page with with what what beast you would be. Yeah, but um, what would your Patronus form take? We are curious to know. Because it says a lot about you as a person, what your Patronus is. Absolutely. It's a very... Um, Personal. And, and it's also kind of this... Uh, it's interesting how, as humans, we decide to identify as a beast. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're all... I guess the beast inside all of us is sort of clawing its way out. Oh. In a sense. Look at that. <laughs> and we leave you with that tremendous metaphor. And, as always, like us on Facebook, please. We have about follow eight likes. We love all of you. And yeah. follow us on Twitter. I think we have about ten followers. So, <laughs> it's also really awesome. And give us a rating on iTunes. Yeah, if you love us, tell us. On yeah, if you don't like reviews. us, don't tell us. You can tell us <laughs> privately. Don't tell us on iTunes. <laughs> 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 All right, if we haven't been demanding enough. 